And now, our Father and our God, we thank you that we can come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. And I know represented here in these meetings this morning, there are many varied and multiple needs. Some who have hearts that ache, some who are overflowing with joy, some who have deep concern for a loved one, some who have concern for their own health. But thank you that nothing is big to you as an all-powerful God, that you are able to do above and beyond anything that we could ask or think. Thank you for the miracle of salvation where you put your hook in our heart and brought us to yourself that we might see the wonder of the gospel and choose to believe. And thank you, Spirit of God, that you are the earnest, the down payment, the pledge that the work you began when you convicted us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that you have now sealed us with yourself for the day of redemption, that you live in us forever. Thank you that you are our helper, that the very word you inspired, you illuminate, and we need that this morning. So fill me and anoint me. Together may we lift up the Lord Jesus that he might draw all men to himself. Our Father, we make this request in your Son's name. Amen. I want to invite you to take God's holy, inerrant, infallible word and turn this morning to the book of Romans chapter 10. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been in a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. But as we approach our Easter Blitz, I thought this might be a good opportunity to push the pause button this week or return next week. But I want to speak on the subject of rescuing a lost world. And indeed, our world is lost. We are on a collision course, and you don't have to be a great theologian to understand that. Almost daily, there's some new philosophy, some new way of thought that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Christian. Add to that the viewing of online pornography, they reported again this week, has reached an all-time high. Now gay and transgender characters have become a common sight even in programs for little children. The White House this week slammed Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee for signing a bill that would criminalize drag shows' performances to little children. The bill also banned minors from accessing gender transition surgeries and hormone therapy. We used to call that child abuse. And as reported just on Friday, 6,000 U.S. public schools have now blocked parents from knowing whether their child identifies with a different gender in the classroom, hiding the status from parents. And this could potentially become federal law if President Biden's Title IX proposals are approved in May. It's almost beyond belief what we are seeing, but it's not in the sense that God said at the end of time in the latter days that men would ascribe to doctrines of demons. We have a drug epidemic where across America, states are legalizing marijuana. The use of opioids are out of control. We've gone from approximately 20,000 Americans dying a year to over 100,000. Just in a few years, why? Because the southern border is open. Biblically, 
You are to welcome the alien, but biblically, you don't welcome the alien under his ideals, but under the ideals of a nation. God, Acts 17, teaches he established boundaries. Without boundaries, you have no nation. And so fentanyl is coming across the border. They now call it rainbow, rainbow fentanyl. Some college students thought they were taking a gummy bear. They're lacing it in marijuana. They're making it colorful. It's 50 times more potent than heroin, I'm told, and 100 times more potent than morphine. Police shootings, mass shootings have become almost a way of life, even in safe places like public schools and churches. That's why we have this building covered every square inch with over 150 cameras being watched this morning for your safety. I was here most of all yesterday and I saw our security team training so that they can do their job well. Add to that in terms of television shows and movies, we've not only reached the bottom of the garbage pail, we're eating it out. And the things that Americans are now entertaining themselves on is beyond belief. And so we're told now to call anyone a sinner is to be insensitive, intolerant, and judgmental. And the sin today is not to commit the sin. The sin today is to tell the sinner that it's a sin. We're told that people are mentally sick, but not sinful. They're weak. They're not wicked. They're ill. They're not evil. And the spread of evil has reached every sector of our culture and now across the globe. And the forces of evil are destroying this nation. We will not survive as a nation if we continue in the path that we are on. And so this morning, I want to speak about rescuing a lost world. What is our responsibility from what's often considered the constitution of Christianity, the book of Romans? The famous blind hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, wrote that great hymn, Rescue the Perishing, when she was just six weeks old, a, an incorrect dressing was placed over her eyes, which ended up blinding her permanently. And she made a decision at the age of eight as a new believer that she would not allow her blindness to turn into bitterness and that she would see it as a blessing for the glory of God. And she's written literally thousands of hymns, many that we sing, after an experience she had in a street mission in New York City where the preacher said, someone here needs to be rescued from sin. She said what reverberated through her mind was rescue the perishing and care for the dying. And she wrote that hymn that we sing on occasion, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep o'er the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Yet I really wonder how committed the average believer is to rescue the perishing. Many are not broken or concerned over the state of lost people. Paul wept, as did the Lord Jesus over the city of Jerusalem. Paul's heart was broken over the Jewish people's unbelief. And today to be broken and to care about someone, to even approach someone with the gospel is considered almost old-fashioned and out of date because we have filled our minds with the entertainments of the world. 
and not the truth of Scripture. Paul the Apostle speaks this morning from our text of our responsibility and the care that we should have for the perishing. We're going to focus on verses 12 through 15, but so that we understand the flow of thought, I want to begin reading in verse 9 all the way through verse 17. Follow along, if you would, in your Bibles. He begins with the words that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things? However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, I know that in these services today, we have many, many new Christians, and the term Great Commission is somewhat foreign to you. So let me just define the word. It's found the Great Commission itself in five different places in the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and in Acts, though the words Great Commission are found nowhere in Scripture, just like the word Trinity that Tertullian coined in the second century, or terms like original sin or eternal security. They're not found in Scripture, but they summarize great biblical truths. The word Great Commission, well, most dated to about 1650 was the first time some Christians use that term, but really it's only been used in a popular sense for about a hundred years. And again, it's found five times in the New Testament, and it was called the Great Commission in deference to the limited commission that Christ initially gave to the apostles. Listen to these words, the limited commission, as we might call it, in Matthew chapter 10. These 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So his initial commission on the day that he designated them to be apostles was limited. It's certainly not our commission. He said, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to those who are half Jewish, half Gentile Samaritans. I want you to go to the Jewish people first and only to them. Why is that? Because number one, salvation came through the Jews. Number two, God was a promise-keeping God, and he is a promise-keeping God, and he wanted to underscore his promises. And two, he wanted to highlight the truth that Isaiah and other prophets teach, that the Jews were to be a light to the Gentile nations. And so don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, go to the lost house, lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then the commission was broadened. Let me read it to you in Matthew 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. He's on a mountain. If some of you have been with me to Magdala, as you look over Magdala, right over your shoulder, there's a mountain. 
And it's on that mountain that it is believed that Jesus was with those disciples that had gathered there in obedience to what he told them to do. And it's a beautiful spot if you go up there. We don't usually go up there because it's too hard to get up there. And, you know, to get an American to walk 50 yards is a challenge, but to walk up a mountain, well, that's another story. In either case, you can see the whole Sea of Galilee and all the towns. And he spoke to them and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Please note what it does not say. It does not say, go and do discipleship, as interpretively it's been understood by many Christian groups and many believers for the last 50 years. Literally, it's a participle, as you go, as you go, make disciples. This was given somewhere one to two weeks after the resurrection to the apostles and to over 500 people that met on top of that mountain. Mark, in his gospel, also records the evangelistic thrust of the Great Commission. Let me read to you what he says. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. This, by the way, is Resurrection Sunday night. So they're in that room, the doors are locked, they're reclining at the table, and he approached them, reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Now please note what he says. Not go and do discipleship. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. It's unlimited in scope, it's evangelistic, and it's thrust. You can lead a Bible study. You can have your small groups. Those are all good things. We should study the Word of God. We should interact over it. And hundreds did in the last hour. But unless we are engaged in doing evangelism, we're really discipling no one. In John 20, 21, again, John's gospel and Luke's gospel fills in more details on that Sunday night. Jesus came into the room and he said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And again in Luke 24, he also said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what we call the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. The Great Commission was given one final fifth time, 40 days after the resurrection, on the day Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives into heaven, the very mountain that he will literally physically come back to at the second coming. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part. It's not parts. The Greek text so precisely rendered here in the NES, the remotest part 
of the world, the earth, because when God sees the world, he doesn't see this mass of humanity. He sees all these individual places where individuals live. Now, I'm underscoring the evangelistic aspect because, again, Christians today sometimes are reluctant to share Christ, and they hide behind the banner of discipleship to avoid doing evangelism. But Matthew chapter 28 is very clear. Go, therefore, and make disciples, or you could translate it, make converts of all nations. How do you make a convert? By preaching the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save. The gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. So you preach, as Mark says, the gospel to who? To all creation. What do you do with these new believers? You baptize them, not in the names but in the name, because we believe in one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And do you leave them floundering as babes? No, we are to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded us, which is summarized in the Scriptures, the Old Testament that He taught, and the Gospels, and those whom He commissioned by the Spirit to give us the New Testament. And of course, this command is not time-bound. It's not given just to the 500 on top of that mountain. It's not given just to the apostles, because the promise is, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if God's primary instrument for fulfilling the Great Commission is the local church, and indeed it is, then what does the Great Commission Church really look like? How does it function? Now, please know the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled with or without the people of Community Bible Church. We've been studying recently in the Olivet Discourse from Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world, and then the end shall come. So the only question that remains is what part will I play? What part will you play? What part will we play corporately? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.9 that we are God's fellow workers. In 2 Corinthians 6, he says that we are working together with him. So we are the instruments. We co-labor with the Lord. And, and so I want God to use me, and I think you want God to use you. And our passage this morning will give us some encouragement on how to flesh that out practically. Now, we're in Romans 10. Context is everything. This chart will help you to see the broad scope of the book of Romans. In chapters 1 through 8, it's the doctrinal section. It deals with God's righteousness as it is revealed. He deals specifically with the doctrines of condemnation, justification, and sanctification. When you come to chapter 9, he deals with God's righteousness vindicated. Some would accuse God of being inconsistent. Paul ends that great section by reminding us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he vindicates the living God by showing that God loved Israel with an eternal love. And then when you come to chapters 12 through 16, it deals with God's righteousness applied. So the first section is doctrinal, the second section is national, the third section is practical. On this second chart, as you can see here, as we zoom in to this national section in chapter 9, He's not dealing with personal election, but he's dealing with how God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world. There had to be a people that God would choose by which you could recognize the Messiah, and that people is Abraham's descendants, namely the Jewish people. So you see Israel's election in chapter 9, 
Israel's rejection in chapter 10. Why are they in unbelief? He came to his own, his own received him not. Why did they not receive him? Overall, now some 30,000, it's estimated, Jewish people did respond, but overall the nation rejected him. But does that mean God has abandoned Israel? Not at all. In, Hebrew, I mean, in Romans 11, he deals with the Hebrew people concerning Israel's future restoration, how they will be restored in the future. And by the way, the reason they rejected him is the same reason people reject him today. The average person is just self-righteous. They think, if they even care to acknowledge God, that God and them have a deal and everything is okay. Notice how the chapter opens. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, them being the Jewish people, is for their salvation. In other words, Paul is saying, I would find nothing in the world more pleasing than to see my fellow Jews call upon Jesus in faith. And I find it interesting that Paul prayed for lost people because he believed in the possibility that anyone could be saved. And second, please note the zealous concern that he has for the lost. And by the way, whatever your theology may be on the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty, if it takes the zeal out of your heart, to share the gospel, then it's wrong. It's distorted. If your theology takes away the burden to try to win people to Jesus, then you've misunderstood Romans 9. Verse 2, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They're zealous, all right, but it's a misdirected zeal, like a lot of religious people today. Verse 3 unlocks the entire chapter, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. This verse plainly says that Israel, though chosen as a nation, were rejected. Why? Because they sought to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. They refused to acknowledge the problem that they were depraved, that they were sinful. They therefore did not see their need for a savior. They wanted a Messiah who would conquer Rome, not one who would die in their place for their sin. They refused to believe that God would ever judge them for they were chosen out of all the nations of the world for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Please notice when a person tries to achieve their own righteousness, they're not subjecting or submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. So when you see some person who's supposedly living a good life and trying to get into heaven through that, they're actually, Paul says, living in, they're living in rebellion. They're denying what the Spirit of God has written in their hearts, that they're sinful, that they need forgiveness. And so they need a righteousness that they cannot achieve. They have a knowledge, they have a zeal, but their zeal is not in accordance with knowledge. And God is unfolding their lack of knowledge, and he tells us why their righteousness is incomplete. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law. Here's the reason. Because Christ is the end of the law. What does that mean? He's simply reminding us, as he's hammered all the way through this great ladder, that our obedience to the law cannot save us. That's the theology of the average man in the street. Works save. Paul says, 
If righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. He died in vain, Galatians 2.21. Why did God give the law? For through the law, Romans 3, comes the knowledge of sin. He'll later write in Romans 7, he said, I would not have known that it was a sin to covet if the law had said, thou shalt not covet. The law was never given to justify, it was given to reveal, to condemn. It's like looking in a mirror and you see your face is dirty. As you look into the law of God, you see your soul is dirty. And so as you preach Christ, you preach God's standards, because as you preach God's standards, God's law, God's moral absolutes, and this is what the evangelical church is now denying. When you've got guys like Tim Keller, so-called apologist, and J.D. Greer, squishy on the moral issues, you've lowered the standard, and man cannot see his need to flee to the cross for grace. And so the text says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the law is sometimes a designation in the New Testament for what we call the entire Old Testament. The law points to the Messiah. It points to the fact that we need a Savior. And Christ is the end of that law for everyone who believes. Look at verse 5. He explains further, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Moses' argument is if you want to be saved by keeping the law, then you better keep it perfectly. For as James says, for whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. So both Moses and the Apostle Paul taught and understood that obedience to the law could not give you a right standing, a righteousness that you need. And so in Romans 4, Paul has already quoted Moses. The chapter opens, what is Abraham our forefather according to the faith has found? Was Abraham justified by works? Paul asked if he was, and he's got something to boast about. And then he says, for what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God took him outside of his tent. He showed him the sky. He reminded him with what he had already revealed in Genesis 12, that his descendants would be as numerable as the stars in the sky, and one of those descendants would be the Savior of the world. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then Paul says to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what's due? You work hard all week, your paycheck's not a favor, they owe it to you. To the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due? But to the one who does not work, but simply believes in him who justifies, who saves the ungodly. God saves the one who doesn't work for it, and therefore he sees himself as ungodly. You see, the guy who's working for it doesn't really see himself as ungodly. He thinks he's good enough. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. And so we should not be surprised in this letter that the Apostle Paul quotes Moses in the Torah some 16 times. Only Jesus Christ can give you the needed righteousness. Look at verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, if you have marginal notes, you will see where this comes from. If you're new to the Bible, almost always, there's only a few exceptions. 
when the change in typeset is there, it's an Old Testament quotation. And it's helpful to go back and read the Old Testament quotation because it will make the text you're studying in the New Testament often pop. And so if you have a a Bible with marginal notes, where does it bring you? It brings you to Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14. Let me read that passage. Moses is speaking these words just before he dies, and he's challenging the people to faithfully follow the word of God. Moses said, for this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and to make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and to make us hear it that we may observe it? But then Moses says, the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Now, in the context, he's talking about the covenant promises that God made concerning the people of Israel. And his point is, is that this covenant that God made with Israel is not so mysterious, it's not so far off, it's not so unreachable that you can't perceive it and respond to it. He's simply telling the people that they had everything they needed to respond to God. Well, Paul does the same thing, but then parenthetically, he applies it to Jesus. You see those little parentheses in your text? Now, there are no parentheses in Greek as such, but you can structure the grammar such that when there's a parenthetical thought, that's what's in view, and so the translators put it there. And so we read here, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. So Paul adds this parenthesis with each major statement to apply it to Christ. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring him down. Brethren, we don't need to send a messenger up into heaven and say, oh God, we need a savior. Please send him down. Oh dear God, planet earth is lost. We don't need to ascend into heaven so as to bring Messiah down because Messiah has already come. Or in verse seven, Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. We don't need to go down into some abyss, into some grave, into the resources of death and Sheol and say, hey, Jesus, come on up. Because he's already been raised from the dead, proving as the scriptures prophesied that he is indeed Lord. And so let me just remind you again how close this salvation is to some of you even listening to my voice this morning. In verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Salvation is so close, it's in your heart, it's in your mouth. The message of salvation is that near. This message of salvation by grace that we, the apostles, are preaching. That's how close salvation is. That's how close it is. You say, Pastor, you say, you say this word is in my mouth. This word is in my heart. Yes, it is. How did it get there? I just preached it a minute ago. I just preached it there from the message of salvation found and enumerated in the book of Romans. And so Paul is simply saying, listen, it's in your heart. Does that mean it's in your mouth? Does that mean that I'm saved? Because it's in my heart and in my mouth? Of course not. 
But he's reminding these Jewish people, it's just like Moses said, it's not like you can't perceive, it's not like you can't embrace the plan and will of God for your life because I've made it plain, I've made it clear. And Paul is applying that to Jesus. It's not like you can't embrace this great plan of salvation as a Jewish nation or as a Gentile listening today because why? It's clear, it's plain. The word has been preached into your heart. The word is there. It's looking, it's waiting, it's longing for someone to respond to it. The word comes into your heart, into your mouth, so to speak. And when, when you say amen on the inside is an act of the will, then the two connect. Salvation occurs. Something happens from the inside out. And it's an exciting thought to think. And so he says here in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth... Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Why? Because as Jesus said, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And so Paul is simply reminding us the word that he is preaching is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. But that knowledge enough is not enough to save you. There are millions of people who are convinced they are saved because they know the plan of salvation but they've never met the man of salvation. There's never been a connection between the mind and the heart, the intellect and the will. And so as an act of the will, people confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord, and they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, and they'll be saved. Now notice carefully here in verse 10, the relationship between the heart and the mouth. Don't miss it. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Please notice, the Apostle Paul here in verses 9 and 10 goes back and forth between the heart and the mouth. In verse 9, he mentions confessing with the mouth, and he mentions believing in the heart. And while in verse 10, he reverses the order because he speaks then of believing with the heart and confessing with the mouth. And then when you come to verse 11, if you'll notice... Uh, He leaves confession out of the mix altogether, and he just mentions believing in him. And when you do, you're not ashamed or disappointed. Again, verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, these two statements concerning confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart in verse 10 are considered to be equal. So think your way through this. This is important. It's often misunderstood. He says, with the heart, man believes resulting in righteousness, or the ESV renders it resulting in being justified. If you're ever going to go to heaven, you need a righteousness you cannot achieve. The Jews had a righteousness according to their knowledge, not according to what God had revealed. Our righteousness, Isaiah says, is his filthy rags. Not your wicked deeds, but your righteous deeds, the best you've done, and the eyes of an absolutely holy God is like a filthy rag. And so he's simply saying, with the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. When you believe with the heart, you're justified, you're declared righteous, you're imputed, you're credited with the righteousness of Christ. It's a new standing you have. And with the mouth, he says, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, both statements are inseparable, and they result in the exact same end. And if you separate these two statements, 
of confessing with the mouth and believing with the heart. And if you look at them with independent meanings, which verse 11 eliminates that possibility, then you contradict what Paul says here and elsewhere in the book of Romans and in his epistles. A heart believing to righteousness or a mouth making confession to salvation are not two acts, they're two sides of the same act. And so by these statements, Paul is not saying that a mute person cannot be saved. <laughs> if you literally had to make the tongue waggle, Jesus is Lord, then all mute people would automatically be lost. That's not the point he is making. When one really believes in the heart, as Jesus taught, he'll confess with his mouth. That's why Jesus said, if someone will not publicly, openly confess me before men, I'll not confess them before my Father who's in heaven. Was he teaching coming down the aisle of a church saved you? That would be a work. It's just like in Mark 16, going to all the world and preach the gospel, and then he says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who disbelieves will be lost. Now, Jesus was not teaching baptism saved, but his point was, and you know that because in the parallel phrase, he doesn't say he who disbelieves and is not baptized. Jesus never taught baptism saved. It's called in Matthew's gospel an act of righteousness. And Titus 3.8 says we're not saved on deeds done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And crystal clearly he made in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He separates baptism from the gospel. But Jesus' point is, the one who believes in me and is baptized, because that's how you made your confession of faith. That was your way. That was your wedding ring that you're saying, I'm not ashamed, I'm married. The ring didn't marry you. God did. The ring is just emblematic. Baptism doesn't save you. Christ does. Baptism is emblematic of death, burial, and resurrection. And if it's true in the heart, the confession via baptism ultimately shows itself. Now, follow this carefully. What precisely does the inner man believe, and what exactly does the outer man confirm? Two simple truths just mentioned here in verse 9. Number one, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Yahweh. And number two, that Jesus, who was crucified, is alive. Listen, a dead Savior can save no one. The prophet said when Messiah came, you would know it was Messiah because not only would he be dead, buried, but raised on the third day according to the Scripture. And so he was not held in the grave as we sang this morning. Death could not hold him. Why? Because he was sinless and he proved his ability as a sinless person to die for you. It was announced with power that he is indeed Lord. So Paul is not saying that salvation is partially through believing and partially through some public confession. To teach that is to add human works to the gospel, and it's something that can be earned. He is simply saying, as Jesus taught, that if you really believe the mouth confesses that which is in the house, you will openly identify with him. And verse 11 eliminates that possibility altogether because it stands alone for the scripture says, for whoever believes in him 
will not be disappointed. And if you'll look in the marginal note, literally it says he'll not be ashamed or put to shame. Now that's the flow of the context. And if you miss that, then you're going to miss this whole idea of being involved in rescuing the lost. So there are three principles that flow out of this context for rescuing people. First, know that the invitation of the gospel is impartial. The invitation that we give, that we invite people to respond to, is impartial. Notice beginning now in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Now, if you remember, you will find that phrase one other place in the book of Romans, for there is no distinction. And sometimes we memorize Romans 3.23 independently of the introduction to that verse. Romans 3.22 is the introduction to Romans 3.23, for there is no distinction. That phrase is actually the main idea of Romans 3.23, one of the more memorized and quoted verses of Scripture. So in chapter 3, if you know the chapter, the Apostle Paul established the truth that we are all sinful, therefore we are all unrighteous, therefore we need a righteousness that God must gift us if we're ever going to meet the Lord, because man's righteousness is polluted and stained. And so what kind of righteousness do we need? Let me refresh you with those two verses. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction in God's eyes because when God looks down from heaven and he sees the human race, it doesn't matter if he's the pagan, idol-worshiping Gentile of Romans 1. It doesn't matter if he is the moral, respectable uh, citizen in the first half of chapter 2. It doesn't matter if he is the religious man and the so-called righteous Jew at the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3. The fact is, in God's eyes, there's no distinction. There's no difference because every one of us have sinned. We've missed the mark. We fall short of the glory of God. And Isaiah's words, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And so the impartiality of the gospel is brought out in this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, people throughout the world, even today, many are trying to come to terms with the guilt and the emptiness that is in their heart. Many will go to church looking for answers. Some feel paralyzed by their past. And they don't seem to be able to go forward. They don't feel like their conscience is really cleansed and that God has forgiven them and given them a fresh, eternal start that can never change. And I'm sure if this is a typical Sunday, there are people listening to me. In the last service, a lady came down and she listened to us on WCBI, WBCI in Maine. And last May, she drove down. I said, you came here from Maine? She said, yes, to come to meet the pastor because she was 70% sure. And she left back to Maine saved. And she moved 
remain to here to become a member of this church this morning. So what's your excuse for not coming to meet the pastor? Mm -hmm. But you see, many people are trying to somehow in their heart, in their minds, to justify themselves before an absolutely holy God. That's what the Pharisees did. They thought that they had found a righteousness in their good works. And to those people, Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. By the way, he did not mean by that saying that some people are righteous and therefore do not need salvation. He is simply saying that some people think they are righteous and therefore they do not see their real need. You go to a physician when you are sick and you see you cannot redeem or save or heal yourself in the same way you will come to a savior when you see you are unrighteous and absolutely, totally unable to save yourself. The principle applies across the spectrum of life. Deny the problem and nothing can be done about it. Admit the problem and there's a possibility for a solution. And so while we cannot artificially convict people of sin, that is a work of the Spirit of God. And before I go to meet the pastor, I go into my prayer closet and I say, Lord, you know, all that I say is really nothing unless the Spirit of God convicts people and shows them their need. And certainly it would be irresponsible for a physician to concede to a a patient's self-diagnosis. And speaking to some physicians, they have to deal with that all the time. The person goes and they're convinced, here's my problem. And when the doctor knows that's not their problem, if they were to concede to that, they would be less than an excellent doctor. And so here in Romans 3, like in Mark 2, Jesus wants us to see the real problem so we can see the real solution. That in God's eyes, the religious Jew or the Gentile pagan are equally in need. We're all sinners in need of grace. And when grace is truly preached, then all of the social and economic and racial and cultural divisions begin to evaporate. So in Romans 10 and verse 12, he's using the phrase differently in Romans 3, for there is no distinction because he's reminding us that we have equal need. But here in Romans 10 and verse 12, he says there is no distinction because he's reminding us that there is equal access, that all of us have the same need and all of us are welcome to God's Son because God is impartial for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who will call upon him. Earlier he approved all of sin, now he approves all are in need, and all can be saved because God welcomes all. And God only has one way of salvation, and that's what he has underscored for us here in verses 6 through 11. And so God loves us all, Christ died for us all, he was raised for all. It's amazing grace for any race, and we are to preach it as we go into the world and to preach to every ethnoi, every nation of people. He is the same Lord, he is Lord of all. Now many of the Jewish people in Paul's day, as in Jesus' day, thought, I'm a member of the covenant people of Israel. Certainly God sees me differently from those Gentiles. But God has only had one method of salvation. 
The same is true. God does not save today. God does not save a Baptist one way and a Catholic a different way. He doesn't save a Muslim one way and a Jew another way and a Hindu another way. He saves us all the same way, and it's through Jesus. There's no difference. We're all sinful, and we all have access. How do we know that? Look at the next word, for. It's causal. Some translations render it because. Because the same Lord of all, all are welcome because the Lord who is over us is abounding in riches for all who call on him. Listen, when you call on the Lord, he richly answers. No one has some corner on the blessings of God. And of course, even the apostles had to understand this. They knew that Gentiles could be saved, but it's not until they come to Cornelius in his household and Peter witnesses that what happened to them on Pentecost happened to the Gentiles. And he goes back and he tells the elders there in Jerusalem and he says, look, they're on the same footing that we are at. And that's what Paul underscores here in the book of Ephesians. Let me read to you from Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision by Jews, because they were circumcised, obviously, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So as Gentiles, we don't need to feel isolated. We don't need to feel left out because when Paul writes the church to Ephesus, he reminds us that the dividing wall between Jew and Greek has been removed and he's made us one body. When he writes to the church at Galatia, he says, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God has only one way of salvation, and he gives the same blessing no matter what your status may be through the eyes of men. And then he says, if that were not enough, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, this does not mean that God has uh, erased his special plan for the people of Israel. But what it does mean is that the same blessings the Jews could know, so Gentiles could know. And that's what Peter went back and told the church in Jerusalem. They knew Gentiles could be saved, but what he didn't understand is that they would be on the same status and on the same ground and receive the exact same blessings. Now, it's interesting because God, because he has brought salvation through the Jew, listen, he had to choose some nation to do it. And God in his sovereignty established a new people with Abraham and he made it very clear so no one could miss it that it would be through Abraham's descendants that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And God, as Paul will argue in Romans 11, has not rejected Israel. In fact, he will restore them and they will become his instruments as we've been studying in the future. But what's interesting is that if one of your loved ones dies today, where does he go? He or she goes to the Father's house. It's also called in the Revelation, the New Jerusalem. 
And someday, as we'll study in this series, we're almost done with it, God is going to destroy the current heavens and earth, and the new Jerusalem, the Father's house, is literally going to come down and sit on a new earth. And it's going to become the capital city, and we can call that whole ball of wax heaven if you want. But concerning the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 12 says, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Tell that to every amillennialist. God is still underscoring that he used Israel to bring the Savior of the world. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the, were the 12 names of the 12 Jewish apostles of the Lamb. Even in heaven, God does not erase the special, unique role that he used to bring the Savior of the world. But here in Romans 10 and verse 12, we plainly read, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. The same Lord who called out Abraham and his descendants to be the chosen nation is Lord of all for anyone who believes. And so in Christ as Gentile Christians, we have equal access, we have equal blessing, we have equal salvation that we can enjoy. And so the invitation of the gospel is impartial. Secondly, I want to underscore as we think about rescuing a lost world, the scope of the gospel is universal. The scope of the gospel is universal. It's not only impartial, but it is universal. To further emphasize this truth, notice what he says in verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, change in typeset. You go out under the margin, you see this is from the prophet Joel. It's in chapter 3 in my Hebrew Bible. It's in chapter 2 in our English Bible. Same text, a little bit ver different verse division for those of you who are listening and reading the Hebrew text. Joel 2.32, it comes from, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So right off, he's reminding us that what I'm sharing with you is not a new truth. It's an old, it's an old truth. It's as old as the prophet Joel. Jews and Gentiles alike were included in Joel's whoever. Whoever. How many of you are who, uh, whoever? Raise your hand. That, I think that means everybody. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Now understand that when Joel made that promise, it's a messianic promise. You go into the next chapter and is looking at what we call the sheep and the goats judgment in the New Testament that we studied when Christ will come, plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. By the way, how did he fulfill the prophecies in Zechariah concerning the first coming? Literally. And so my dear confused amillennialist friend needs to understand that the Messiah is literally going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to split it in two, and he's going to judge the nations of the world, as we studied some weeks back. And of course, back then they didn't know, though it's a messianic promise, that his name would be called Yeshua, or Jesus in English. Now it's contextualized. Paul takes it and he applies it to Jesus. 
Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul, when he preaches, he said, look, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. He's declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world, having furnished proof to all men. How? By raising him from the dead. And so he contextualizes it to Jesus. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just like Joel says, you can't call on any old deity. You have to call in, if you go back, it's capital L, capital O-R-D. And we noted in this series the different spellings of Lord in the Hebrew text. It's capital L, small letter O-R-D. Or capital L-O-R-D, all caps. Or capital G, small letter O-D. Or capital G, capital O, capital D. I said, read the introduction to the NASB and you can sort that out. It's not difficult. But Lord in Joel is Yahweh. And Paul takes this term Yahweh and he applies it to who? Jesus. And unless you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is God equal with the Father, you will never see the inside of heaven. Kurios is in the Greek text, and sometimes the word can just mean a term of respect to an elder or whatever, but most of the time it's used to refer to Jesus, and 6,000 times in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it translates the word Yahweh. And so Paul is making it crystal clear that Jesus is Yahweh, that he is Lord, that Jesus shares the same nature, the same authority, the same majesty as the one true God. And Peter in Acts 10 reminds us that God is not a respecter of persons when he says this, he witnesses what happens to Cornelius and his house, that they received the Spirit just like they did on Pentecost. He said, I most certainly understand that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Verse 36, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. And what we just read in verse 12, he is Lord of all. Now let me parenthetically stop and look at verse 35 because it's an abused verse by the liberal. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Please understand he is not teaching that any person of any religion who fears God and does good will be saved. That would deny his definitive statement that he's already made in Acts 4.12 that there's salvation in no one else. But again, that's what the liberals do. Peter plainly states in Acts 11 verse 14 that Cornelius feared God and he did what was good, but he needed to be saved. What is he affirming? Cornelius responded to the revelation that he had. God gives revelation in the creation around us and within the conscience within. He had never heard Jesus preached, but he knew there's a God in heaven, that there's not all this multiplicity of gods as the pagans around me believe, but there's one true God and he's the God of Israel. And that's why he even cared for the Jewish people. 
He feared God. And until a person fears the Lord, he has zero wisdom. Because until you fear God and respond to what you know to be true in your heart, that the Spirit convicts you of, that you are a sinner, you'll never see your need for salvation. And so we have these people today, again, who are lowering the standard of God whether it's a Tim Keller or a J.D. Greer, where they're now squishy on issues like homosexuality or, or Andy Stanley. This is wickedness. When you are doing people a disservice, when you lower the standard of the law, why? Because the law is God's schoolmaster to lead you to Christ. When you see the law, it's, again, it's like looking into a mirror where you see your face is dirty. When you look into the law of God, you see your soul is dirty. And so here's Peter, and he recognizes, what does this man do? He is responsive. He fears God. He knows that God has an established uh, means that by which we should live because the law of God is written in his heart as is true of all men, uh, Romans 2.15. And he responds to the light he has, but he's not saved. But because he's responsive to what he has, light responded to brings more light. And God works in this man's heart, and he works in Peter's heart. And in the providence of God, he brings the two together that he might hear the gospel and be saved. He is Lord of all, and whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, third and finally, the preaching of the gospel is essential. The invitation is impartial. The scope is universal. It is to go to all men. God is not one to show partiality. He welcomes all to him. But the preaching of the gospel is essential. And that's where we'll camp in our last few minutes together. The gospel, again, according to Romans 1.16, is the power of God for salvation. It's the best news men will ever hear. Now, look at verses 14 and 15. There are four questions. You should circle the word how in the text. How, then, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Now follow the Holy Spirit's train of thought through the pen of the Apostle Paul. If this gospel is designed for all men, as he has taught us in the invitation to go to Jew and Gentile alike, and if the language of the gospel is impartial, it's a whosoever will kind of gospel. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and it is. Then implicit in the word call is that the gospel must be preached. You can't call upon the Lord for something that you do not know. You can't call on him to save you if you don't know about the salvation that he brings. So again, follow this. What he is doing is he's giving us now the plan of conversion in reverse order. Don't miss this. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call? You might want to circle the word call in verse 11 and draw a line down to verse 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? In other words, the sinner's call on Christ for salvation has to be preceded by first believing but you can't believe something you don't know. And again, in the broader context, he has explained that Christ is the one who delivers people from sin. Look at question two. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? The sinner cannot believe the gospel unless he first hears the gospel. So hearing precedes believing, and hearing and believing precedes calling. But he's not done yet. Look at the third question. And how will they hear 
without a preacher. Now, we'll see the word preacher is not being used in a technical sense. I'll come to that in a moment, but he's talking about you. How will they hear without a preacher? Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 speaks of the fact that God is pleased to use the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. You see, the average evangelical pulpit no longer believes that. You preach longer for 20 minutes than you're weird. You don't entertain the people with stories and everything else. You're off base. But it's the foolishness of preaching that one converts people and grows people and changes people. So God calls and anoints his people to preach the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And let me just say parenthetically, any pastor who says the virgin birth is not essential or who denies it or the substitutionary atonement or the fact that Jesus literally physically came out of the grave, or they question the infallible, inerrant, eternal Word of God, both Old and New Testaments, and Stanley came out in the last two weeks denying that inerrancy was essential as long as you believed in the resurrection. Listen, everything we know about Jesus, everything we know about the resurrection comes from an inerrant Bible. Such a person is blinded, and they're not serving the living God, they're serving the evil one. And let me say, again, I'm going to show in a second that this applies to all men, but let me ask this question. Where are the young men who will stand up and speak for God? Where are the young men who are yearning to be used of God, to fill the pulpits, to go into the mission field? I was speaking recently to a, a leader in our nation, and he said, Carl, the the seminaries are shrinking. And in 10 years, over half of the evangelical seminaries, they're either going to come together or they're going to close their doors. And what are many of them doing? They are like the one I went to. They lower their standards. They begin to question what they always taught for 100 years. Why? Because we need more people in the door. And we got to keep this ship afloat. But I would just ask, where are the men and by the way, where are the women that God has called into ministry? Not to be preachers like me, but to serve in some full capacity. Where are they? Look at question number four, verse 15. How will they preach unless they are sent? By the way, again, I noted earlier from John 20, 21 on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus comes into the room and he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. By the way, the sending has nothing to do with church boards or mission agencies, though elder boards and mission agencies may help missionaries go and preach. But as Isaiah clearly and profoundly underscores, it is God who sends people. Recall the two questions that God asked of Isaiah. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And do not forget what Isaiah did not say. Isaiah did not say, here I am. I will go. No, he said, here I am, send me. In the truest sense, it is God who calls, it is God who commissions, it is God who sends us. As we'll see in a moment, God wants you to go not in your power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, in Luke 24, 49, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. 
We've studied this great covenant, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, the promise of this new covenant. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, the Holy Spirit, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So again here in verses 13 to 15, you have the plan of conversion in reverse order. First, Jesus in his great commission sends us to preach the word. The preacher must preach the word so the sinner can hear the word, and they have to hear the word in order to believe the word. And so believing is essential, but unless they hear it, they cannot believe. Now, again, I don't want you to miss this, because what he is talking about this morning is not somebody for just like me who formally is called to be a preacher, teacher in the body of Christ, But here he uses the word keruso, that means to anoint, to announce, and as Jesus declared in the Great Commission, it applies to every believer. And so as we think about rescuing a lost world, we need to think what our responsibility is. Look, it's really easy, especially if you're a hyper-Calvinist, to hang out around Romans 9 over the sovereignty of God and to ignore human responsibility in chapter 10. Paul said, for we are God's fellow workers. And so while salvation, without a doubt, is a work of God from beginning to end, we are his fellow workers. And when the Spirit of God ministers through us to other people, folks will be converted. Now, look at, again, the first two questions that highlight the unbeliever's problem. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? In other words, if they never hear about Jesus, they will never be able to call upon him. Now, you might think, well, surely in America everyone has heard. I don't think so. Barna Research recently did this survey, and they asked these questions. Do you believe that praying to deceased saints can positively affect your life? Half of the people, 50%, said yes. Do you believe the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truth? Four out of six people said yes. Do you believe truth can be discovered through human reasoning and personal experience? Apart from Scripture, 54% said yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ sinned like other people when he was here on earth? 42% said yes. Do you believe that when people are born, they are neither good nor evil? They make a choice between the two as they mature. 74% said yes. In other words, the average American no longer knows the facts of a sinful, by nature humanity, of a sinless Savior, and believes in the unique, divine, inerrant inspiration of the Bible alone. Now, you might be thinking, well, okay, we got America, but we've got a mission field. Well, that's true. We we have a mission field, but our mission field is America. This is where we live. Yes, we should be concerned, and God may call some of us to go, as he has, and the 360-plus missionaries we support. But this is our mission field that we are to take the gospel to. As you go everywhere you go, make disciples, make converts, share the good news. And so Paul is simply saying, how are they going to believe in faith unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless you go? He's basically looking us in the eye 
and saying, in essence, what are you going to do? How are you going to preach the gospel? So the first two questions highlights the unbeliever's problem. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? The second two questions highlight and underscore our responsibility. And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? A preacher, it's a non-technical use of the word. It just means to proclaim, to herald a message. And so men and women who are born again, boys and girls, teenagers who've met the living Lord, are to share this good news. Listen, Paul is saying, people can't be saved by watching you. People say, well, I let people, you know, witness my life, and that's my sharing. They can't get saved that way. Now, they may see your kindness, they may see your commitment to Scripture, and that may give you a platform to share, but they still have to hear the plan of salvation. And so what are we going to do? Look, in a few weeks, next month, we have the Easter Blitz. There's so many new neighborhoods. And just every year, there's more neighborhoods, more houses. And I, I just think, Lord, if you could just give us 500 one year, just 500, we really need 1,000. We're, we're not even asking people to get on their knees and to receive Christ. We're just inviting them to church. It's pre-evangelistic. So I can't walk too far. Well, I get it. Maybe there's something else you can do, or maybe you go to 10 houses instead of 100. I mean, you got here today. Hmm? Well, you see, the average evangelical Christian no longer really believes that people are perishing apart from faith in Christ. There's a hymn we used to sing. Here's, one, here's the chorus. Must I go empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? I spoke to a person recently in their 50s, and they told me, Pastor Carl, I've never led anyone to Christ. Not a soul. I said, well, you certainly could take my course in evangelism. Do you think they had training courses in the first century? No, they just went. You say, well, what do I say? Well, if you're saved, you know the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, you're not saved. Just tell them what you know. And pray for opportunity. And let God use you. Now, you may be here this morning and you feel covered over in guilt and shame because you don't know your sin is forgiven. Listen, no one is so good that they need not be saved, and no one is so bad that they cannot be saved. This is a whosoever will gospel, and if you will call on Jesus and believe that when he died, he bore your sin, your punishment. When he was raised, he did that for you. He will save you instantly, and you'll be born from above. Your life will change. Holy Father, we thank you this morning for the time we've had to pour over these scriptures. Thank you that whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 
Thank you that whosoever will may come, that you receive sinful men. You said Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I pray today for someone within the sound of my voice that they would come to Jesus. They would call on his name and trust him to do what he promised. Now, Father, I thank you for this great church and for so many of our people who are engaged weekly in sharing the gospel. But we pray because the harvest is so great and there's so few of us who are doing that 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 number would grow. I pray for our Easter Blitz next month. I know everyone can't come, but I pray for those who can come that they will come. That you would honor that time in the various campuses where we're going out. We need your help. We need your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.